Welcome to the Cops and Writers Podcast. On this show, you will learn how to write the best crime-related novel or screenplay possible. Your host, Sergeant Patrick O'Donnell, worked the streets in one of the nation's largest police departments for over 25 years. Ride along with O'Donnell and his expert guests as they help you navigate the oftentimes confusing and misunderstood world of law enforcement. O'Donnell and his guests on this show do not represent any law enforcement agency. The content of this show is not meant to be legal advice. If you think you need a lawyer, you probably do. Hey, Cops and Writers, thanks for being here with us today for episode number seven of the Cops and Writers podcast. I'm Patrick O'Donnell, and I'll be your host for today's show. Today, our guest is full-time police lieutenant and full-time writer, Scott Moon. We discuss his over 24-year career with the police department, where he was a patrol officer, SWAT operator, detective, sergeant, and now lieutenant. Scott and I also talk about how he balances home life, fitness, being a full-time police lieutenant, and being a prolific author. We also examine his writing process and the importance of consistency in writing and life. All this and more on today's episode of the Cops and Writers Podcast. Scott Moon! Thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Scott here. He's been a police officer for about 24 years, served and serving as a SWAT operator, special community action team, gang intelligence unit, and as an exploited missing child unit detective. Scott is now a lieutenant. Scott Moon began writing fantasy and science fiction at an early age, reading and listening to audiobooks in every genre. Currently, he is writing in the military science fiction and space opera genres and loving it. He is also the co-founder of Keystroke Medium, a popular podcast and YouTube channel. He's also a guitarist, an artist, a martial arts student. And I believe you're a family guy too, aren't you, Scott? You're married, have kids? Oh, you bet. Yeah, I got Got a big stack of them all still at home because I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> so I guess my first question is, uh, when do you sleep? Uh, you know, <laughs> I see all this stuff and, you know, you're, you're a pretty prolific writer, so you have to be organized, well, I would imagine. I definitely have a system. I'm not sure it's a good system or I could in good faith recommend it to anybody for health reasons. But yeah, I'm, I'm like a lot of, a lot of us. I, I sleep kind of, I have lots of little two hour naps that are scattered throughout the day. Uh, eventually add up to a uh, sleep, I think. Okay. Well, we're going to go back to that, but I'm going to start at the beginning with you. Where did you grow right. up? Uh, I grew up out in Western Kansas in Garden City. Okay. So we, we, uh, we like to call it the armpit of the world or the rim of hell. <laughs> oh, well, on kind of mood you're in. Okay. That's nice. Uh, did you come from a police family? Anybody in your family? I had, I had uh, my uncle was a police officer as I was growing up. And when he was uh, going to the junior college to get some of his criminal justice uh, education, he came and lived with us for a while. Okay. Um, So he was a big influence. So you'd see him in uniform talking about police stuff. It kind of sparked your young brain. Yeah. Not so much in uniform because he hadn't, by the time he got hired, he moved uh, to another town and actually worked there. He did a little bit in our town too, but when he was growing up, like, we'd always talk about the biggest influence was is he won a bunch of uh, handgun shooting state competition awards. He's really okay. good with, with, with firearms. And so that always influenced me. I, I thought he was, I thought he walked on water, you know? <laughs> okay. Well, that will influence a young person. So what got you into police work? How did you, uh, how did all that start? I went to, uh, right when I got out, I was in like a bunch of uh, garage bands in high school and stuff like that. Oh, cool. So I immediately went to Los Angeles 
and okay. to go to to go to music school. Okay. And I had some run-ins with police officers there, which are amusing stories that we can get to at some point. They're not very long. Um, but then I came back when I realized how difficult that was. I came back to Kansas um, to be um, to basically get a degree and get a real job. And while I was there, a couple of friends had talked me into trying the police reserves. I did that for about a year. Could and, you explain was, to people crazy. that don't know what exactly is police reserves? How does that work? Okay, so in our in our department, you go through an academy that's the same length, but it's like three hours a day instead of eight hours a day. You do everything on your own time. You don't get paid. Um, at the end, you get you get a full police commission. Um, carry the badge, gun, powers of arrest. Um, you have to qualify on all the same things. And then you go out and you go through the field training, just like a regular officer. And then generally, depending on, it kind of comes and goes, but usually they don't let you ride by yourself. You ride with a regular full-time cop. Um, or, but sometimes once you've been there a long time, they'll actually let you go out and just basically be a cop for free. I was just going to ask you, are they paying you for any of this? No, that was completely for free, which oh, wow. sounds crazy now. Yeah. yeah. Is, do they yeah. still have that program? They still do. It's changed quite a bit. Um, they do lots of, they're real heavy, like on special events. Like we have a river fest and other types of things where they kind of come out in force. They're required to ride a certain amount of hours, um, per month. And they just, a lot of times what they do is they get an officer, they, a regular officer that they get along with and they'll, they'll double up with them Sure. and they'll do everything, but basically write the reports because, you know, that's more, you go to court a lot more if you're the, the lead oh, officer. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, yeah. So it's like having, it's like having a backup when you wouldn't normally. And do they get paid today? No. Wow. So you have people that will take on that liability and not get yeah. paid. It's really funny because a lot of people do it because they think it's going to help them get hired. Oh, sure. Um, and I thought maybe it would be a good way to kind of test the waters and see if I mm -hmm. liked it. And, sure. you know, and you have a, a big uh, kind of a community service mindset. You feel like you're doing something good when you do it. Right. And it's pretty cool. You know, you don't get to get that training unless you're a cop or a reserve. So that was all really cool. Um, I just had this this discussion with a good friend of mine who was retired, and he, they had tried to talk him into coming back as a reserve. Mm -hmm. And I was like, in today's environment, I would not do it. Right. Just, uh, but yeah. yeah, it's just too much liability. It's it's. Um, but the the thing is, is what I found out that at least in our department, if you're a reserve police officer, and something happens, like you get involved in a lethal force incident, or you get sued or something then you get the same access to like legal services as if you were getting okay. paid. So, so you, I mean, that's, that's not bad. Yeah. But still you wouldn't want to put yourself in that position and have zero. Wow. That's yeah. That's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of abuse these days to, <laughs> to, uh, to do it for free. I, Boy, that's I think no there's lie. a time and a place for it, but I, I, right? I probably would not do that now. Yeah. The department that I worked for, we had, um, explorers those were like younger people they would go to parades mm -hmm. and direct traffic that kind of thing and we didn't have reserves we had uh what do we call them? it was something like reserves they would wear just a little bit different uniform but they didn't have arrest powers they didn't carry any yeah. kind of weapons you know they had a badge but they had to give it back to us when they were done doing whatever they're doing you know, we keep yeah. it in a safe, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it, that's totally different. And they wouldn't really ride with the police. They would, you know, here's your coroner. You know, it would be like maybe two or three of them. And 
you know, here's your corner, make sure nothing, you know, crazy happens and make sure, you know, people are crossing the street the way they should be, that kind of thing. And yeah. You know, well, so and that's, that's totally different. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a good experience. And, it, and like I said, it was kind of like these guys that got me, t- we all, we we're all taking Spanish together. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time we talked about before the show, yeah. trying to learn Spanish. But, um, and, uh, and it's funny. So they, all three of them got on the police department. One of them eventually went on to be a, a, a U.S. marshal and okay. like a, a, dis, a district, um, whatever you call that, head, what's the, uh, head office, head federal officer. I, I lose the terminology. Yeah. Um, and then one, one became, went all the way to captain and then retired and works for private security for a big private interest around here and does uh, personal security detail stuff. And the other guy, he retired after about 10 years and started flying for law enforcement, doing, doing transports, Oh, okay. Uh, doing law enforcement transports and stuff like that. So they all gotcha. did pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, uh, but, that's totally cool. Yeah. So, but they they would ride um, at the time with some really hard charging officers. This is in the early nineties. Okay, and so they would go out. The reserve officers would double up with these guys who are out there doing you know really going after it uh, in in some in a, some pretty yeah. pretty intense times. You know, middle of the crack wars. And yeah, stuff. I was just going to say that's the, during the crack yeah. wars. Yeah, it was it was crazy. Looking back on it now, it seems crazy. <laughs> we'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by the thrilling audiobook, Avenging Adam, book one in the FBI canine thriller series written by author Jody Burnett. Sparks fly between hotshot FBI agent Rick Sanchez and no-nonsense FBI canine handler Kendra Dean as they chase a ruthless serial killer. Witness an electrifying blend of suspense, romance, and redemption, where internal conflicts challenge our heroes as much as their target does. Will they catch the killer before it's too late? Grab Avenging Adam now. It's more than a story. It's an experience. Get 50% off the Avenging Adam audiobook at jody-burnett.com forward slash cops and writers. Well, and eye-opening for these reserve cops, that's for sure. But mm-hmm. it's going to spark your interest. You know, for me, I did an internship at, with the sheriff's department. They threw me, first of all, in jail, like in the crazy wing. You know, I, I worked there for almost four weeks. It was summertime. and in this part of the jail there was no air conditioning it was 80 mm. 90 degrees outside and they had what they called forced air it was just air circulating but it wasn't cooled oh, nice. so yeah. you can imagine the aromas you know because it was always overcrowded you know and it was yeah. and they put me like in the the super crazy super dangerous wing just for shits right. and grins more or less you know hey what's this kid gonna do you know but it sparks your interest and it's like wow this stuff is cool you know police work is awesome so, you oh, know, yeah. I was on the street, I, I got the coppers actually pulled over a car and I'm in the back seat and, you know, looking back, I didn't have a vest. I didn't have anything. I just had like a little ID tag and <laughs> this guy, right. the, the dude inside the car throws a gun out the window and he's like, so all of a sudden they're like, get down, get down because, you know, they throw one gun out, you know, that doesn't mean he's got yeah. another one, one waiting one. for you. That's right. That's his throwaway. So, you know, right away I got into car chases and I saw all kinds of crazy stuff. So, yeah, yeah. it's amazing. But it gets you, it really sparks your interest and it's like, wow, this, this looks like something I want to do for a living, you know, as crazy yeah. as it may sound. So it, it's great. It's, it's great. So what, what I did there is like I said, I kind of got an idea and it was really hard. I found the reserves really difficult because I only did like two weekends or two, two weekends or two days a month. And so every day you came back, 
it was like being a brand new first day rookie. Oh, every time because you had to re because you're nervous about the radio, sure. you know, you're going out there and doing all that cop stuff for the first time. So about a year and sometimes it was good. Sometimes it wasn't. And then I went on and I was going to be, I started training to be a school psychologist and I was in graduate school and I got married and my wife said, Hey, I'm pregnant. And I said, Oh shit, I need a job. <laughs> so yeah. Ta -da. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm now I'm motivated. My motivation has changed and yes. I need a job right now. That was when um, Clinton had the 100,000 more cops on the streets initiative yep. in yep. 90, 96, 97. So but when I was on the reserves, everybody I knew was trying to get hired and nobody could get hired. And mm -hmm. so I, I put in my application, not expecting to get hired. And I got it the first time. I think I was the last person in the academy to get picked, but I did get hired and, uh, and have been there ever since. Wow. Yeah, I got, I got hired because of that bill. You know, mm -hmm. we had extra federal money that we would get. It, and they're like, well, just so you know, that if this, you know, federal money goes away, so does your job. And it's like, until yeah. we hire somebody to replace you. And when I got promoted back in 2001, they said the same thing. You know, this mm -hmm. position, this sergeant position is open because of, you know, Clinton's crime bill. You know, the, this is all federal yeah. money. And if this federal money dries up, you're back to being a cop. And you have to sign this piece of paper saying you're cool with that until – somebody else gets promoted, you know, behind you, then you're in the clear. Then mm -hmm. we're not going to take your Once job. Once you get a little seniority. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, that yeah. was a little on the unnerving side. But, hey, I'm a little in more interested. <laughs> you sparked my interest with you went out to L.A. and was a guitar player. What kind of band were you in? Oh, it was, it was an 80s metal band, you know. Um, the <laughs> Did you have hair back entire, then? <laughs> oh, yeah. I had hair down almost my butt. You know, it was it was ridiculous. Yeah. And it it looked great too, because of course I, oh, I guess I had some professional help, but you know, my girlfriend would be like, I'm going to frost your hair. Cause that was a thing you did back then. Uh -huh. And so she frosts my hair and it came out platinum blonde, the whole, <laughs> the whole bit of it. I was like, yeah, that's, that's a crazy ass look for me. But at the time, you know, I was down with it. Oh, that's funny. Small town, Kansas. I stood out. Let's just put it that way. I would imagine. Wow. Did you take a van out there? Were you in the van with the band? <laughs> yeah, I wish. Well, <laughs> none of the band went. They all chickened out. So I oh, went no. by myself. <laughs> and, and, uh, I went to the Musicians Institute, um, which I went to the part. I started at Guitar Institute of Technology it's in Hollywood, California. Okay. Um, and then I switched to the Bass Institute of Technology because I realized statistically I had a much better chance of getting a job as a bass player okay. than a guitarist because there was a lot of guitarists. I bet. Um, I would walk home from school on Hollywood Boulevard because the school's right off Hollywood Boulevard. And you look over your shoulder and you would see like literally 50 guys with guitars walking down the street. I'm like, every one of those guys is awesome. But you'd only see like one bass player. I'm like, I'm going to do that. Oh, so okay. I did that, and uh, and uh, it was it was interesting. It was really cool, and I, I I liked L.A. And I went out there probably ten, twelve years later for a karate tournament, and I still liked it. But it's weird because I like it, but at the same time, I feel completely out of place there. And like, I wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't want to live there. Definitely not now. Um, but it was very interesting and eye opening. Um, all the just the things you can, I mostly just played the guitar and worked out the whole time, but I did do a few neat things while I was out there. But you said you had a couple of run-ins with the cops? Yeah. So by run-ins, the, the, <laughs> I didn't have a lot of, I would see them a lot. Uh, so two, I'll tell two quick stories. So the first one is to go ahead and make myself look like a clown. You know, I was walking <laughs> home from, from school with my guitar, probably with my sweatpants tucked into my cowboy boots and, <laughs> you know, my long ass hair and a muscle shirt. And I'm carrying my guitar, the soft case on my back. And I'm, 
I go to, I walk down Hollywood Boulevard, I turn north on Yucca to go to my apartment. And I get probably 30 or 40 feet up Yucca Street. And I gl- happen to glance over my shoulder and look back and there's two cops walking the beat there. And I thought they said, hey, man, what's up? And so I was like, what? Like, or like, what do you need? You know, because I was from Kansas. I was super polite, obviously. Sure. And and they didn't take it that way at all. So they they immediately got these hard glowering expressions. They both gripped their nightsticks and started marching towards me. <laughs> I remember going, "Whoa!" And I put both hands up. I was like, "Hey, hey, hey!" I was just I thought you wanted some. I'm cool. And then they kind of looked at me for about three more seconds, and then they kind of smiled and walked off. Oh, that's. So funny. I was like, I don't, "I'm about to have a really bad day um, with that." <laughs> so that was that was interesting. Um, then the other experience, which was interesting, is I was right as handwriting a letter to my friends back home in the band, which shows how long ago this was in the eighties, yeah, sure. 89. And I just hear a volley of gunfire right outside my balcony. I was on the second floor and I, I go out and I look out the balcony and um, there's a Hispanic guy laying in the, um, in the gutter, you know, and he looked like he came straight out of the movie colors. Well, that was a movie. <laughs> was back in, I mean, he had a flannel shirt and he had a wow. button at the top and, yeah. and you know, I, I didn't know much about this type because, you know, all of the the rap and gang lifestyle movies and stuff hadn't really hit much except for that one. Sure. And so I'm looking at that guy and he's obviously probably dead. And then like two cars away from him, there's a family and they're crouched um, behind this car, you know, in fear. And, and then the police cars start showing up relatively quickly. And I was like, wow, you know, that just happened. And so that was, that was amazing. Cause I just basically witnessed a shooting. I didn't see it, but I heard it. Right. And How old were you trying to, I was 18. Okay. That's, that's young to be witnessing, you know, a kid from Kansas. Yeah. You're not in Kansas anymore when that shit starts happening. For sure. And, you know, and to, to be clear, Garden City is a rough place to grow up. I mean, you could definitely, um, get yourself in some trouble, but there hadn't, there weren't drive-bys back then. Right. Um, but so then the next day, day I hear two gunshots and I immediately look out the window. I'm going to see what's happening this time. Cause that's obviously a great idea. Let's just run to the window. Oh, absolutely. A, bullet, a bullet's going to hit you <laughs> while you're looking at the window. But I run out there to look. And I mean, within seconds, there might've been 50 police cars, probably 10 unmarked cars, like two helicopters coming over. So they're waiting. For, the cops were waiting for round two, apparently. Oh, okay. um, and they swarmed in. I didn't, couldn't quite see whether they got anybody from that or not, but, but that was like my first um, witnessing of a massive police response. There was probably a hundred cops there in two minutes. Wow! Um, after that second shooting, yeah, I grew up in Ch- I grew up in Chicago, so I, you know, I had firsthand, you know, witnessing of all kinds of policey stuff going on. And we were we moved to a suburb, but one of the things that really got me going into police work was I was a little kid; I could barely see like over the window, and you know, every all the houses in that area are super close together, and they were serving a search warrant. And of course, oh, yeah. there's SWAT teams there, and we have a guy with an M16 and a shotgun. You know, another guy with a shotgun in our backyard. You know, providing cover. Yeah, and you know, they breach the door. They're pulling people out, and then I'm just like, I'm literally just like feet away from this, looking out the window. I'm like, this is the coolest shit ever. Oh my god, you know, wow. that gets you going. So. You uh, do your stint in uh, L.A., you come back, you're a reserve police officer, you start going to college, you got your bachelor's. Why did you have your bachelor's in? A bachelor's in psychology. 
Okay. I started out in music. I started out in music. And again, I was like, I don't think I can pay the bills. I'll maybe get a job I could do something with. And then I realized that getting a degree in psychology is not great either, unless you're going to do post. Correct. You you got absolutely. It's funny because I went to college to be a band director. I was a music major. Oh yeah. Hey, you know, so (laughs) I played saxophone. That was, that was Mm -hmm. my thing. And yeah. So I wound up being a cop, go figure, you know, it's, yeah. Cool. It's crazy how many musicians and weird, weird types of things that cops have. If you know all the cops, you find out, like, I just learned one of my troops, he's into a unicycle. He rides unicycles. I'm like, wow, that's an interesting hobby. <laughs> Does he jungle while sounds, he plays, while he rides know, a unicycle? But, now that would be talent. Yeah. So you do that. You get on the job. How long did it take you to get on from the time that you, like, applied, took the written test? What did that look like? It, it was a one-year process. There's about six or seven parts to it. Okay. Um, if you were from out of town, they would cram most of it into one day. Sure. Or a couple of days. Because you had to like take a psyche valve and a written test. Um, you had to take an MM, was MMPR 9 or what, the psych, psych uh, eval. I, they didn't want yeah, I was going through. We, we had all that. We had home visits where they come out and talk to you in your home. Make oh, sure yeah. Your family supported you. Um, there was an agility test. We had, my favorite thing they don't have anymore is you had a trigger pull test. Mm-hmm. So you had, you had to, you had to take a revolver and pull the trigger as many times as you could in 60 seconds. Okay. And that disqualified lots of people because they couldn't do it. They, they figured if you couldn't do that, then you didn't have the grip strength to be a good shot, which is probably bullshit. Um, but, but yeah, that used to fail a lot of people. Yeah. When I, especially t- women actually. Yeah. When I took the PT test, it was, I still remember it. It's changed quite a bit since I took mm-hmm. it. I took it, I was 20, uh, about 30 years ago. I took the PT test. I had to wait four years to get on the job. The waiting list was that mm-hmm. long. And yeah. I, <laughs> so the PT test for me was you had to do a flex arm hang for 45 seconds, which is holding a chin up. Right. And you had to climb a ladder to get to the chin up bar. So if you fell, it would really hurt. You know, it, it would suck. <laughs> and it was August. It was hotter than hell. It's in the gymnasium of the academy. And there was like two or three meatheads in front of me, just some really big dudes. And they all failed. And I'm like, son of a bitch. You know, oh, yeah. they're a lot bigger than I am. And, you know, they're, and I'm like, this is going to suck. So. You know, my palms are sweating because I'm nervous and I'm perspiring mm-hmm. because it's it's literally like 90 degrees with 100% humidity in that freaking thing. And I'm just, oh, I have well, to hold on to this bar. And I'm like, okay. So obviously I made it. And then, you know, you, you drag the dummy around. It was a 175-pound yep. dummy. And then Which you Which is had, way harder than it sounds like. The, well, dra- the dummy drag is a lot harder than it sounds like until you do it the first time. Well, you go the length of the gym twice. And you yeah. couldn't turn your body. You'd fail if you turned your body. Like if you turned your shoulders, you're trying to like mm. run sideways or something like that. You literally had to run backwards. And yeah. if you fell, you also fail. So you you get this far and, you know, all it takes is one little slip and you're done. And it's like, yeah, you can reapply That's again. That's crazy. You know, you can wait another four years if you want. You know, and I'm like, great. And then there was a six foot wall that I got stuck on the top. <laughs> And it's timed, you know, it's like, I guess, you know, there I'm right-handed, so I'm right-footed, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. should plant your left foot and swing your right leg over. It wasn't a cyclone fence. It was a sheer wall. That's where some of the bigger guys 
they were able to do it. And the females had a hard time with that where they didn't have a hard time at all with the flex arm hang. So it was kind of like right. opposite. And six of one half dozen of another. Yes. So <laughs> I'm like on top of this. And one of my instructors from the Academy, he wound up being one of my instructors. He was there because they'd have like testers at each station. And he's like, you've got five seconds. And I'm like, oh shit. So I just literally threw myself over it. And I'm like, okay, if I get hurt, I get hurt. You know, I, I got to get yeah. over this thing. Then when you were done with all yeah. that, you had to run a half mile in under four minutes. That was that. And it was back in the parking lot. You know, there's potholes everywhere. You know, it was funny because yeah. the instructors had a garden hose going because it was so hot out. And they were just hosing us down as we kept on running around in circles. It felt great because it was so freaking hot out. I'm like, all right, this is kind of cool. Thank you. But every every corner, you lose a little bit of time and, and stuff. Yep. Yeah, but we had a, we had a, we had a lot of those things. We had a, it was called a Cooper's Mile. I don't know how. Okay, I've Cooper's heard of that. Miles a mile, it's a mile and a half is a Cooper's Mile. Apparently, yep. so we had, that was we had to do that. I can't remember what the times were, depending on age and stuff. And I was I was 27 by the time I decided I was going to be a cop. You okay, know, spent. Very inefficient. You know, I went to, I went to the guitar thing for a year and a half and I did, I changed my major two or three times. So it took me five and a half years to get my undergraduate sure. and I started graduate school. So, I mean, but I wasn't the youngest, I wasn't the oldest guy in my academy class by any stretch of the imagination, but it was interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, I was 30 when I finally got hired. I was 26 when I took yeah. the test and I was 30 when I got hired and the majority were younger than me. You know, like, mm -hmm. yeah, 21 in Wisconsin is the uh, bare minimum. And yeah. yeah, same here. Same in Kansas. Okay. Yeah, 21 is the bare minimum. And we had one guy, he was a parking checker. You know, we had parking checkers that went around, wrote out parking tickets. He did that for the city for like 20 years. And he was mm -hmm. in his late 40s, almost yeah. early 50s. And he got on. <laughs> that poor guy we'd be doing these runs and he's we'd get done and he's just looking he's like i can't do this man i can't do this i was like yeah you can't die you got it man you got it and he, he passed yeah. i was very yeah. surprised because he says i really trained hard Good for this for him. i'm like yeah I, I had a recruit yeah. that was in his early 50s he made the army a career and he made it through the academy and he actually outdid a lot of the youngsters but what they did was for better lack of words they dummied down the pt test where yeah. you know it became a obstacle course and right. they would pick random cops that were like full duty and it's you know i'm working late shift and say like, report to the academy you have to run the obstacle course i'm like i have to do the what for the where and i'm like all right i don't even have pt clothes you know it's your uniform and they're yeah. like well we'll let you take your vest off and i'm like thanks I'm like all right you're you know, running it's in combat boots. We, yeah, we did. Uh, we did. This is kind of really that topic when I was on the SWAT team. We did, um, and it took a lot to get staff to buy off on this. But we did some training drills and assessments with sim paint simunitions, and um, and we would call people on duty and like they're getting sent to a call. And they would oh. go to this mall we had set up. Yeah, and then we had like a, a four stage triple rechecked safety check to make sure they didn't have oh, any weapons yeah, on them. You know, absolutely. Down, then we issue them paint sim guns and then put them through a scenario um, to see how they would react. So it was like, talk about, it was probably the most realistic training we ever done. Yes. Um, Cause in, in their full regular uniform, all the regular gear uh, with the, with the simulation gun. Mm -hmm. And, and we got a lot of good statistics out of that and learned a lot for how we trained people. 
Um, but that's kind of like what you're saying that that type of PT is actually applicable, you know, an obstacle course, because if you can run five miles, that's good, but I've never ran five miles after no. anybody. God, no. Uh, One block career. is enough. You know, it's funny. Yeah. You, you see it on TV and, you know, they're running after people for blocks and blocks and blocks. I'm like, are you kidding me? After one yeah. city block, most people are gassed. You know, that's, that's, yeah. And hard. most of them are, they're gassed. And, and if you can chase them for like three or four blocks, you're probably going to have dozens of police cars screaming into oh, the area. Absolutely. And they're going to cut that guy off before yep. he can get yeah, too I, much farther. That's going to be anyway. I always told my guys, it was like, as long as you can keep them in sight. You know, and you got yep. your radio, you know, we'll, we gotcha. We'll, we'll get them. If we don't get them today, yep. we'll get them another day. That's no problem. It's, we always said 50, 50 feet from the last place you saw them. They're yep. probably hiding. And oh, that absolutely. usually works. See, I'm glad we're not the only part, but like that, the, the way you run into problems is, is if they have, um, and there's, there's some neighborhoods where you can just run up to any house and say, the cops are after me and they'll let them in it. And then you can't find them. Right. You don't know which house they went into. Yeah. So you, you can lose them that way, but, um, and, and if it's super cold, super dark, you know, sometimes they can duck down into something and, and get hid. But it just depends. It depends on who, who they like. If I, if they bail out on me, um, they might get away. But like I had a, a guy who worked for me in one of my teams when I was a scat sergeant. And uh, and he was a uh, Olympic hopeful 400 meter hurdler. Oh, my God. And people would run from him. And, yeah, they never even got close to getting away from him. He's so fast. It was like weird to watch him run. He was so fast. <laughs> I had, it's funny you mentioned that because I had a guy that he was in the academy class behind me. We wound up working in the same district and I loved working with, he was a Marine and Mm -hmm. he was like freakishly fast and he never got tired, you know, and he would chase people and he wouldn't get them right away. He would just taunt them. He's like, I'm going to get you. Yeah. I'm going to get right you. you. Oh, yeah. And I'm, and I'm huffing and puffing and dying. I'm like, Scott, would you just tackle this motherfucker? I'm dying. Come on. You you know? just- but it's all kinds. And then you had other people that could barely run. They could barely get out of their own way. And it's like, all right, well, it takes a little bit. And you of have all. people that can hurt every time they chase somebody. Oh, God. Um, yes. And then you have people that are just basically indestructible. You're like, I yes. don't know how you didn't break everybody in your body with that trick you just pulled. <laughs> I had a guy run th- run through a fence after somebody didn't think he could jump it, so he just ran through it. Yeah. I'm like, good job. <laughs> yeah. I have to pay for that. But well, you know, good job. Yep. All right. So fast forward here. You're a police officer. You start on the street, pretty much mm-hmm. like anybody else. I would imagine. Now you've done a variety of jobs. Yeah, I'm looking yeah, here. Yeah, cool gigs. Yeah, you did. So the de- just to give some uh, frame of reference, uh, the department that you worked for has about 800 members, somewhere yep. in that ballpark. Mm-hmm. Now, you said you were on the SWAT team. Uh, that isn't a full-time SWAT team, correct? No. No, it's a part-time SWAT team. We're just one of those two, two, two training days a month and two full weeks a year, and then occasionally some extra training, especially when you're new. Okay. Uh, and then you're on 24-7 call-out. Oh, so do, you, you, do you take turns with that, obviously, where it's like, okay, no, it's your- with ours, our, so our team was 17 people, including the team leaders, plus we had, plus we had a couple of county guys, and we had some okay. medics. Um, that were, and, and so it's interesting, the SWAT medics were firefighters, uh, in this case, and then mm-hmm. they would go to the reserve Academy to get a law enforcement commission so they could carry a handgun. Okay. Um, when, when we're doing uh, entries and stuff and now they would, we, they'd never be in the stack unless it was kind of just that how it happened. Right. But they needed to be able to come in and, and, and be, you know, in, in the hot zone. Um, so, <clears throat> so with our team that size, uh, 
in, in our policy, and I think it's still that way. They were working on changing it for a couple of exceptions, but um, was the whole team deployed every time. You could not activate part of the SWAT team. You had to have the whole team, including negotiators. Now, the negotiators, wow. they could they could determine if they were needed or not, if it was just like an, a warrant service or something. See, that's, yeah, that was our, our, our uh, policy. That's a small team for a department that big. You would think it'd be a little yeah, bit that's what larger. we said. Yeah, that it truly is. It's a lot yeah. bigger. It's, it's a lot bigger now. It's like thirty-five people now. But a lot okay. of that's county. The county expanded theirs, and it was a, it was a Wichita Police Department, Cedric County uh, Task Force. So it was both okay. of them combined. All right. Yeah. yeah, we like our department has a full-time SWAT team. We call them the Tactical Enforcement mm-hmm. Unit. There was some animosity between the cops because it used to be where the TAC guys would drive around, and they wouldn't take assignments. Because they're always waiting right. for the quote unquote the big one, you know, and yeah. the coppers would get pissed, you know. Especially, I remember one time I'm a newer cop, and two tack guys come upon a car accident. I'm like, okay, and I was like, yeah, could we have a squad meet us at you know whatever intersection? I'm working one man that night, so they send me, and I'm like, hey guys, mm-hmm. what's up? And it's like, oh, these two cars, you know, they just got into an accident. I'm like, yeah, that's unfortunate. And they're like, um, yeah, you know, it, we have to stay available just in case. Yeah. And I'm like, well, yeah, you still get that. So I'm yeah. like, oh, really? I said, uh, do you know how to fill out an accident report? Yeah, but we don't have any with us. I said, you know what? It's your lucky fucking day. Here you go. So I hand him the accident report and a number two pencil because back then you filled in the bubbles. It's a lot, you know, it's all right. on computer now. And I said, you guys have a nice night. Okay. And they're like, uh, uh, yeah. uh, uh, uh. Yeah, so well, that's the thing is a lot of them probably have forgotten how to do a lot of those basic because I've been in I've been in in units where I didn't do um, as much of and so you forget how to do especially now an accident for us now we use a a, complicated computer program you have to use yep and if I had to do one right now as a lieutenant having not worked an accident myself for 10 or 15 years, it would take me like four days. It would be a nightmare. I, I totally, I, I totally know what you mean by, by the, the call dodging from certain units. Yeah. And then, you know, then mad, they worked day shift and what we call the power shift, which was mm-hmm. like seven at night till three o'clock in the morning or sometimes six at night till two in the morning. And I worked late shift midnight to eight. And if something kicked off at three or four o'clock in the morning, there was no SWAT team. You know, it's, it's just you. So Mm -hmm. that's what you got used to. And that's, you know, we didn't see a value in them, obviously for the main thing that they did was serve warrants. You know, they're the, they're, they, for people who don't know, you know, it's like, they're the ones who go in, you have a search warrant for drugs or guns or what, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're the ones breaching the door with the big Ram thing and they're going through and. They pra- this is what you practice. This is what you do for a living, yep. more or less. Over and over and over and over again, you practice it. Yeah, there's there's a method to the madness. And way back when, when I first started, our drug unit had their own entry team. They didn't use the SWAT team unless yeah. it was something you know, out of the ordinary or something like that. And then finally, I forget which chief it was. It's like, no, we're going to have one team that does this all the time. And that makes sense to me, but you know, they didn't want SWAT operators going in and destroying evidence. 
you know, that kind of thing. There's pros and cons. And then, and yep. then even simpler than that is the SWAT operators go in and they're not always great witnesses in court because they're not really paying attention to the dope stuff. They're just looking for oh. people that they got to make they're sure they're looking they for the them. threats. Yeah. And then they leave and then they walk out and you're like, did you see any dope laying around? Like, uh, you know, I was honestly wasn't looking down. I was looking ahead for bad guys. Absolutely. And so, but like, so I was on the, the special community action team is kind of like SWAT light. Oh, if I say that now, my friends probably will come kill me. But um, so we were a special community action team where we were at. It was, you were a regular police officer and you could take calls kind of like you're saying with this full-time team, but mostly you worked complaints and you didn't, you weren't tied to the 911. And we served on search warrants unless they were too dangerous for us. And so okay. we, we did a lot of that stuff. So, but as a SCAT sergeant or a, a tactical a neighborhood complaint type special team, you would, you would develop the CIs, you would do the, the trash pulls and all the things to get the warrant, type up the warrant, get the warrant approved, mm-hmm. serve the warrant, arrest everybody, do the interviews, uh, process all the evidence, uh, turn everything in and then testify in court. So when you went in, if it was your warrant and you saw, you know, a big bag of crack and a pistol there, you would remember that and you'd put it in your report. Okay. Because, so it, because you were a one-stop shop then. You know, like what you were saying before, like the SWAT guys, they do their thing. Mm -hmm. They stabilize, you know, one thing that, you know, you see on TV, you know, like (laughs) the many things that are wrong is, Mm -hmm. you know. NCIS or one of those. No, the one in New York, um, special victims. That's what it was. Special victims (laughs) unit or whatever. And the SWAT guys are ready to breach a door. They're serving a warrant. And, you know, this female lieutenant goes to the head of the line and she's shushing them away and she's wearing a little raid jacket. And he's like, I'm going in first. And I'm like, no, you're not. You'd be in a car a no. block away. You know, they want to keep it. They don't want anybody but the SWAT guys there. Because yeah, if if, the, if it's a SWAT response and there's a reason and it's, you know, they should go, they, you know, they, so like we have a SWAT comes out once they're on scene, if they've been activated, then they are in charge of that scene. Sure. Yep. Uh, there's no arguing about how things are done. Right. Yeah. And that's sometimes, you know, that'll ruffle some feathers. You know, but you have the SWAT guys have reasons for doing what they're doing. And, you know, sometimes that. Yeah. But that's one of the many things that, you know, TV and movies and books, you know, they get wrong. But anyway, so you had a variety of jobs. You did that gang intelligence unit. You were a detective for a while. Yeah, I was a detective for uh, about four and a half years. Uh, Now, what is the rank structure where you work? Like uh, you start so, out as a patrol officer, a police officer, mm-hmm. you're on the street. Then where do you go from there? So ours goes um, police, detective, sergeant, lieutenant, captain, deputy, chief, chief. <clears throat> and you have to – you can't skip any ranks at this point. It used to be you could test for from officer straight to um, sergeant. You could skip detective. But they, they got rid of that because really? they wanted they wanted their supervisors to know about invest, the investigative side of things. You know, that makes sense. Yeah, you know, where I work, there was two distinctive paths that you could take. You either stay mm-hmm. in patrol or you could go to the detective bureau. You know, if you wanted to be a detective, you could take the test for detective. And then if you want mm-hmm. to be a sergeant, then, you know, you take the test for sergeant. But when I first started, you could leapfrog from detective to detective lieutenant, but you wouldn't yeah. work in patrol. You know, and yeah. everybody stayed on their side of the house, you know, more or less. Then we had a chief come in and shake everything up and said, no, you know, I'm going to start mixing you guys up. And if you want to be a lieutenant, you got to be a sergeant first because a detective isn't a supervisor. Right. You're an investigator. 
And that's yep. that's where again, you know, things get messed up. You know, a lot of times in movies and TV or whatever, you see, you know, the lone wolf detective doing, you know, lone wolf detective stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're bossing everybody around, including sergeants and lieutenants, and you know, they're butting head with their captain all the time. And it's like, well, the captain would just shit can you then. You know, you can yeah, only do that for that so would, long. You wouldn't be in that for very long. You would definitely Find some hard times. So, so how did you become department? a detective? Oh, uh, you get to just take. You got to test for it. You have to have a certain amount of time on. If the more education you have, the sooner you can test. Okay. Um. So, and so in our department, as like you get promoted to detective, you get promoted to sergeant, and you're immediately pushed back out to the street, and then you got to get back into investigations or stay on the street. And so everything comes from the street and goes back to the street on patrol. Okay. And whatnot. All so right. I took the test. I took the lieutenant detective test four times. You could take it every year. Okay. Um, the last time um, I was a gang intelligence officer and we were working at, we talked about this before the show, we were working on the BTK uh, uh, serial killer special assignment. And I, I didn't score super high. I was like number eight on the list and people kept getting promoted. And so by the time that assignment was over and they, we wound up as a, they wound up catching BTK, Dennis Rader. And, uh, and then it was like one month before the list expired. And so me and my partner who were now one and two, after everybody else got promoted, they went ahead and promoted us. Okay. And so I've got to detect it that way. Did they keep you in the same unit then? Or how did that work? Uh, just briefly, but I, then I went to, you had to put in a list. Um, so I put in, I put in for gang. Cause I want to be a gang detective. Cause I'd been a gang officer. Sure. Uh, SIB or narcs, what a lot of people would call it or EMCU because those were all, I thought, you know, really, um, EMC's exploit mission child unit. Those were all kind of, you get, they were high speed for okay. lack of a better term. Right. They gave and you I a got choice. Selected. Well, you, we put in a list. This oh, is, really? This That's surprising. Usually it's like, nah, yeah. you go where we tell well, you to go. It surprised a lot of people. So I put in for those things and I was selected for narcs or SIB, which I was pretty cool with because the scat stuff was basically street narcs. Yeah. And, um, and I was really excited about it, but then somebody complains says, no, they don't get to put in lists. And so the, the FOP actually blocked that. They said, no, you can't do that. And they made a big, big stink out of it. And so they said, no, you can't, you can't do that. Now, for pick. people that don't know, what is FOP? Uh, it's a fraternal order of police. Yeah, it's you the know, union. And they do a lot of right? good stuff. Yeah, the union. It's our yeah. union. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. For some and people. They did a lot of good things. Mm-hmm. In, in, in that particular case, I felt like they, you know, they used me to prove one of their negotiating points with the staff. And I wasn't very okay. happy with them for a while, but sure. I still support them and I still supported them then. Right. Um, so they, they do good things. So you worked as a detective for how long? Mm-hmm. About four and a half years. Okay. Then you took the test for sergeant. I took the test for sergeant almost all four of those years. Okay. Because I wanted to be back on the street. Um, gotcha. I was in the I was in the exploited mission child unit for those for four of those four and a half years, and that is um, physical and sexual abuse. And oh. it was a really good job. I got lots of training and I did probably my most important cases there, but it was wearing me out. I was, I was not very happy with humanity by the time I was done with that. You know, you're not the first person to tell me that, you know, I, uh, I was interviewing, um, Adam Richardson. He has the Mm -hmm. writer's detective uh, podcast and you know, he spent some time in there too. And it's, it's the same thing. And guys that are guys and gals that I worked with on my department, we call it sensitive crimes. And, Mm -hmm. I I don't know how you do that day in and day out because like you it, said, you weird. lose all faith in humanity. You're like, how can these monsters be walking amongst us? When you're there, it's not bad um, because you're just doing the job. 
but if you try like I had some times where I was like, I couldn't go back. Okay. Once I've done it, when I'm there, it's okay. Cause somebody has got to do it, but right. trying to go back would be really hard because you know what you're getting into. Sure. Um, and it's just, and you, and you can never have an off day. You could never slack off because the victims are always kids. And so they just, you, you had to be a hundred percent on your game all the time. And it was, a, and it was lots of overtime, lots of call outs. Sure. It was just, it was, it was rough. Yeah. That's your, what I see is, you know, a department of about 800, you're not a small town department, but you're not a big city department where you have this detective bureau that's 24 mm-hmm. seven. So that's, yeah. yeah, you're kind of like on the cusp. So yeah, that would be tough. Well, was- and in that particular assignment, we actually sent, it was a task force. So it was us in the county again, but we handled 19 counties in the in oh. South central Kansas wow. or, or mid Kansas. Yeah. So we, so we would go other places. We'd go to other jurisdictions and work these cases too. Did, did they deputize you as a sheriff's uh, deputy? Then, uh, or? They usually had an MOU. What it is had, that? It had an MO, uh, a, a memorandum of understanding. Okay. And basically we'd request them. And you would, did certain things, it depends on where it actually occurred. Sometimes it occurred in both places and things like that. Yeah. But a lot of time, if it was like, there'd be times when you would work it and they would actually be like the lead detective and charge it in their their district, but all of these were in the same the 18th judicial district. So everything we did, if it was being charged in a state and state, it'd be the same, whether you charged it in one County or next in okay. these 19 counties. All right. So you're a Sergeant. Now you are a Lieutenant. Uh, how long have you been a yes. Lieutenant? Uh, since July. So just relatively new to that gig. Could you explain yeah. to the folks listening? What exactly is your job as a Lieutenant where you're at? Oh, that's, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, that's, I so, bet it was on the test. So, yeah, it was. <laughs> so basically as, as a sergeant, you're going to want one is span of control. So you're going to have less people, but I, I supervise three sergeants and 19 officers supposed to be 23, but we're short right now. Um, and so then you have to do, since I, I work nights, I work in the field or field services, which is a street. And so I will go out and make calls supervised calls on scene sometimes, depending if my sergeants are busy or just, they just need me for a higher, um, a higher priority or a higher uh, severity of a call. Um, but then I have to do a lot more admin stuff. You're doing sure. lots of scheduling. Um, sometimes you have to be acting captain, which means you got to run the budget um, and different things like that. So right. it's, it's your first, you're, you're switching from, it's like the fulcrum between frontline and staff officer. And you're kind of both. Okay. And it's really interesting because the lieutenant in our in our department is the first um rank that's not uh represented by the union. Oh, okay. And so you're not really represent you're kind of like that. You're kind of you kind of get slapped around from both sides of that because you're not a staff, but you're not you know, frontline either. So it's it's, yeah, a, that's weird, it's a weird it's a rank. I would say because yeah. like where I worked you're represented by the uh, supervisor union up until you're an inspector. So mm-hmm. our lieutenants, sergeants, lieutenants, and captains were all represented. Right. So, you know, yeah, that that's tough. So, that's so we would still be represented like um, in a, like if I go out and get in a shooting, it would be exactly right. the same as for any officer. But, but like if um, they, like, for example, they, uh, a few years ago before I became a lieutenant, and they did the contract negotiations and everybody sure. got raises. Everybody complained they weren't enough. And then it went through and then the lieutenants realized that they didn't get a raise <laughs> or okay. al- almost, they got a raise, but it was almost nothing. And so uh, how it worked out is they lost all of their 
time and grade stuff and all kinds of different things that factors into your pay so that sergeants were now making more than lieutenants. That doesn't make a lot of sense. No. And it took, it took, uh, four years to fix that. Wow. People are like, why do you want to be a lieutenant again? I'm like, I'm not sure. <laughs> it's for the pension, damn it. It's for the pension later. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Let's fast forward. What do you think are the most common errors you see that writers make when it comes to police procedure when they're writing books or screenplays or whatever? Um, so I think the most common error is going to be uh, not knowing your genre expectations for that. So and when I say that, what I mean is, is if you're going to go into police procedure in detail, then it's probably a police procedural, but most people, they get, they get hung up on some stuff they shouldn't and perhaps make errors that could be easier if they didn't even address that point at all. So if like, that makes any sense. What kind of examples could you give of that where they get it wrong? Um, some things like, like, you know, maybe how, how, well, the biggest thing is how detectives work and how cases are assigned okay, um, and, and how they're handled and stuff like that and who has authority about things. So I guess the biggest thing I'll go for the low hanging fruit is sure. the relationships between local law enforcement and federal law enforcement. And okay. it's much more dramatic from a storytelling perspective to show this big conflict, but you have a major incident and, and you tell me if, if it's different where you're at, you have a major incident. And in the movies, everybody would be fighting for possession of that incident. But in real life, everybody's saying, no, you, oh, FBI, a, you want to come take care of this oh, yeah. and pay it's for a, everything? It's a freaking hot yours. potato. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's what, like, what do you want us to do? We'll watch. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll uh, I'll set some traffic control up here at the end of the street. You just call us if you need us. Right. You know, you know we had a robbery task force going. And I think it's still going on where the FBI was helping us out. And, you know, we would get X amount of, say, bank robberies or pharmacy robberies, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. maybe you would have one FBI agent show up. And he didn't come yeah. in and say, well, this is mine now, or, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's like, hey, what do you got? And he was just tracking. He was tracking a lot of numbers, and he was tracking, okay, is this a crew that might be, you know, working at, you know, the town next to us or the city next to us looking or for, a suburb? Looking or, for a nexus. Correct. So they don't come in and, you know, puffing out their chests and say, you know, this is ours now. They don't want it. You know, just like, no. just like we don't want it. I remember I had a shooting one time, it was a homicide, and the shooter was in Milwaukee, and the victim was in West Milwaukee. It was literally across the street. He was shooting at this guy. So mm. I pull up. There's a dead body literally in the middle of the street. And I was like, well, I know his, where right this is hand, his right hand is in Milwaukee, and his left hand is in West Milwaukee. You know? And West Milwaukee gets there before us, and they're all excited because they don't get a whole lot of stuff like this. And... They start clearing houses and doing this and that. My guys got there and they're like, Sarge, you know, what do you think? And I'm like, hmm, it's a good question. So I was like, well, I'll call homicide out. So they come out and they're like, well, it's really theirs, but they literally have three detectives that they're like getting out yeah. of bed as we speak. And we have a full-time homicide unit that's 24 seven, you know, and mm. he's like, yeah, we'll take it. And I'm like, but those guys were super relieved that we were doing that. They're not saying it's like, oh, it's ours. You know, we we better take this. Nobody wants that. But yeah, yeah, like you know, what you said. If you put a lot of work into something, I mean, like uh, when I was on the scat team, we would like do investigations on neighbor complaints, and we'd work on it for like four months. 
And then, and then sometimes that would turn into like a DEA thing and then they would take it and then not tell you anything about it and then right. not do anything with it for like a year because they were doing a wiretap or something. Sure. And that was frustrating. Yeah. I could you know, see stuff that. Like that. I could totally um, see that. The, the other thing is, uh, I had something related to what we we're just talking about. So one of the big things that, that writers make wrong is like, they think that FBI has more powers than local law enforcement. And so like, as a police officer, when I'm working a neighborhood complaint and somebody says, Hey, my house down the street is selling drugs. And so I can do, you know, surveillance and I can even walk up and knock on the door. And we, we called it a knock and talk. Say, Hey, yep. we call you know, the same I'm working, thing. I'm working yep. a complaint, working a complaint. Somebody told me you're selling drugs. Uh, you want to talk to me about that for a little bit? Yes or no, or whatever. Um, but like uh, a fed can't just walk up and self-initiate a contact like that unless they have approval from Washington. And so they can't, they can't stop cars. They can't do, they can't just do a lot of those things without either exigent circumstances or some sort of approval from their, their field office or usually all the way from DC right. and things where, whereas a good, a good proactive police officer can, can do a lot more. They have a lot more powers of arrest actually putting hands on people than feds. Yeah. It's their role is different. That's for sure. That is for yep. sure. All right, let's mm-hmm. fast forward into the writing because this is cops and writers, and you're a writer, damn it! Uh, I love to write. <laughs> yes, that's what I am uh, getting into. How did you get into writing? How did you? How did this start for you? So, uh, when I was growing up, I was a pretty mediocre student as a, as a young child, and the only thing I ever got any praise for was writing this one story in third grade. So, I always kind of <laughs> thought it made me made me feel happy to write stories. Do you still but, have that uh, story? When I was, do what? Do you still have that yeah. story? Do you? Oh, that's no. cool. Oh, come no, on. I know what it's about. It was, it was basically probably about like it was, I remember it was about like air tube transports in a sci-fi city, like the Jetsons probably. Oh, I cool. was in third grade. Okay. And so I don't remember what it was, but when I was 12, I was playing Dungeons and Dragons a lot. And my mom, who is an English teacher, well, she was a, I think she was just starting as an administrator at that point, but she said, okay. we should write a book for kids your age. And so I started writing books for, for 12 year olds and there wasn't really a middle grade book genre back then. And they never, yeah. you know, I of course didn't get anything published, but, um, and so from the time I was 12, I basically was wanting to be a writer as my career. And so I've always done everything I've done since then has been to feed into that. Okay. In some way. Wow. So when, how old were you? Well, not old. How long ago was it that you published your first book? How long ago was that? Uh, I first published in 2012. Okay. Are you an indie? Are you a hybrid? Are you traditionally published? Uh, so I'm I'm a hybrid in the in the fact that um, most of my audiobooks are done through uh, Podium, okay. which is a traditional audiobook publisher, uh, and then I have I have some books with Athon Books, which is a small press that's fairly new, mm-hmm. and then several through Variant uh, Variant Press or it's Athon Books Variant Press. Josh has Variant, that. Josh Hayes, he was your partner and he is your partner in crime with Keystroke. He he goes through Athon, yes. right? He, yeah, he has several through them. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I, I do some collaborations with Richard Fox, and he publishes those. Um, and then I do some some pub, some collaboration with Jeff Cheney, and he publishes through his company, Variant Press. Okay. And then I do I do some of my own stuff as well. So yep. obviously there's pros and cons to be any of that. You know, Indy, you're mm-hmm. everything. You know, you're in charge yes. of your own advertising. You're, you're, you're doing whatever it, it takes are you a pantser or a plotter? One of our co-hosts on Keystroke Medium, Chuck Manley, he he likes to call himself a panster with a plan. So that's kind of <laughs> like me. Okay. So what I do, 
there's a really good book by Larry Brooks called Story Engineering, okay. and it breaks that breaks down a way to to outline books and structurally divides them into four parts. And I follow that a lot. I mean, I modify it a little bit to what works for me, but I find that to be very useful. So I will outline, and I'll usually like write a synopsis for each four part. Okay. And I will a lot of times outline the first half of the book before I lose interest in outlining and just start writing. And about the time I get that written, then I will outline the rest of the book and then write the rest of the book. Do you just use, depends? And it, it, do you use Scrivener or what? Do you use Scrivener? Okay. Yeah, I've done it with. You can do it with anything, but sure. I, Scrivener works well for me because, um, for several reasons, is I can because I can split the screen basically. And so sure. I can have what I'm working on, on my, on the left side of my screen. And on the right side of my screen, I can have the chapter before. Okay. And I can see, okay, that's what happened in this chapter. And I need to be moving to here. I like that feature. Um, and then I will put an entire series into Scrivener and I can search it all at once. Okay. Um, for little details like names or places and right. things that I'm trying to keep consistent. Now you write science fiction, space opera, Mm-hmm. Am I correct? That's that's yeah, pretty much yeah, the pretty meat much. potatoes I, of your I, writing. I did some urban fantasy. I mean, I write everything, but I've only ever published, and I'm focusing on most of my efforts right now on on the mill sci-fi. Okay, all right. As far as doing your own marketing, what do you think is selling books today? It it, it does change pretty quickly sometimes. As far as like uh, Facebook ads, Amazon ads, rapid release, what works the best for you? What do you think is the sweet spot? The so I'd start off by saying that it's for reasons completely unknown to anyone, no matter what they tell you, it's different for every person. Because I have, I know through Keystroke Medium, I've met lots of writers and I've collaborated with lots of writers. So mm-hmm. I know people that are like seven figure authors, right? Mm-hmm. And some of them spend an enormous amount of money on ads. Some of them spend almost no money on ads. And I don't know why one works differently for other person. So it depends. But as a general rule, um, I think I've, I personally have found the best result in getting new sales through Facebook ads that drive directly to my Amazon sales page. Uh, I've, I've canceled my, my Facebook ads right now just for budgetary issues. And my Amazon ads seem to be doing better than they used to. I'm not sure why. Okay. And so they can't be useful. But Amazon ads are hard because it's really hard to gauge if they're working. Right. You know, and and you really only know if like if you're doing really well and you kill your ads and then your sales tank, then you know that you probably should start that ad up again. So since 2014, how many books have you published? About about forty. Um, well, I was looking at it, yeah, four forty. It's confusing because Amazon counts them differently. So Amazon gives some super high number, and like when I do the count for like friends at work, say how many books have you published? Like I have a series of novellas that are like twenty thousand words each. I count those as one book. Okay. But if you look on Amazon, it's going to count them as three. So I say about 40 okay. what I've done. So you have quite the production schedule. <laughs> um, how many books do you write a year about? I I write, well, I, in 2019, I published 10. Okay. And in 2020, I published eight. And you're but working full time. More. You're working full time. You've yes. got a family. You've got other responsibilities. That's a lot of yes. books. It's a lot of books, and so the, the 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 absolute number one productivity hack is consistency. Okay. And so if you can do two thousand words a day, 
So what does your day look like? Walk us through Scott Moon's day. How do you get this consistency? How do you churn out this amount of uh, work? It's a little bit weird since I'm on nights because I have a weird sleep schedule. Okay. Um, But when I was on days, I got up at three in the morning. I wrote for two hours and I went to work. Hold on a second. And so, but I did that every day. So I always, absolutely the first thing I did every single day was write for, and it would come out to be an hour and a half to two hours, depending on how close I wanted to cut going to work. Okay. And then I would write, I write every opportunity. But the main thing is, is I never miss a day. I might have days like one time in 2019, I I have a word sheet, a spreadsheet. I, I track my word count, my word production. And one time I had seven words because I was editing. And so I didn't have any new words, Okay, but I had, but I'd edited for like three and a half hours that day, but I had so, seven words. So I, I put it on the spreadsheet, seven words. <laughs> Do you set goals for yourself as far as like, okay, I need to hit 2000 words a day or X amount yeah, try, per month I, or whatever. I try for 3000 words a day, but I also, so I track time because um, 3000 words, sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's impossible. And then you get, you get uh, discouraged and depressed because you're not hitting your word counts. Right. But I was like, I worked a lot on editing or I worked a lot on my newsletter and things like that. And so I would, I learned to count that and give myself a break if I wasn't getting the words, as long as I was still working towards the goal and not just, you know, playing video games all day or something. (laughs) Yeah. Not a whole lot of time for that. It sounds like. So the other quick tips is one, I've learned to turn, turn it on. I've practiced turning on the writing. like, so I, I practice like sitting down and writing immediately. Okay. And the, the idea is, so sometimes I will get 15 minutes and. Do you dictate or do you physically type? I do both depending on where I'm at. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And at home I have uh, dragon um, naturally speaking for this, this computer I'm using and this microphone, and this is a dynamic microphone and it doesn't let any outside noise in. Right. So it's really good for, for the dictation, even when my air conditioner is running over there. Uh, blowing everybody out, but then I have dragging anywhere on my phone and okay. I have, um, I have a complicated process where I will, and that's one of the things Scrivener is good for because I can do chapters at a time and I can do like one chapter on my phone and I can cut it out of my phone and drop it right into my phone on Scrivener and it synchronizes my computer. Okay. And so it's very, very helpful for just raw productivity on first drafts. Okay. So you mentioned uh newsletters, how big of a newsletter do you got? How many, how many people? Uh, mine right now is about 1200. It's not huge. How effective um, do you think that is? It definitely helps. So I have a beta group or an, a, an advanced reading group that okay. when I, I send them out, there's about 70 of them on there. And out of that, I'll usually get about 10 reviews when I launch a book. Okay. And so I can get, and, and since they've stayed for all these books, they generally like the books. And so the reviews are generally good or at least decent because they're really honest. They'll give me a four star or a five star or whatever they feel at the time, a couple mm-hmm. lower than that once in a while. Sure. Um, <clears throat> but it helps with your launch to not have right. no reviews. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. You know, I was looking at your bio and, you know, just following you on Facebook, et cetera. You're also into fitness. You work out quite a bit, it seems like. So yes. like a regular day for Scott you know, you're working nights. You said, what, what are the hours? Yes. Yeah, so my hours, I work from eight 30 at night to seven in the morning. Okay. How many days a week is that? That's four days a week. So you work four on and then how many do you get off? Uh, three. So four, I work, three. I work, uh, I work technically, I work three, 10 and a half hour days and one 11 hour day per contract. Okay. So you do that. Uh, <laughs> you get home at about eight o'clock in the morning. Do you go to I bed right away? 
Yeah, I usually do. So um, what I usually do, because I, I live close to where I work, so I, I get home, um, I talk to the kids. Wife takes them to school generally, unless she's working, then I take them to school. Okay. And then I go to bed. I sleep till about 1130 or noon because I just keep wake up no matter what I do. Okay. And then I don't drink coffee. I try to write for an hour to two hours. Nobody's mm-hmm. in the house or until I start feeling the fact I'm not drinking coffee. <laughs> then I take a nap and then I get up and then I go to work and I handle my admin stuff as quickly as I can. I'll try to work out on duty if possible because we have a good gym and, and, and our Currently, our staff supports that, and I'm the oh, lieutenant, wow. so that's great. I I, I can car- generally people. My officers, they're like they generally they joke about it. they like me because I'm a nice guy. Sure, but they're like if I show up on scenes, they're like, "What are you doing here? Why don't you go do lieutenant stuff?" I'm like, <laughs> "I'll be at the gym." So that's nice. Doesn't always now in the winter time that works. In the summertime, it's it's call to call all night long, no sure. breaks, no time for anything, no right. time for going to the gym. Um, but that's just different time of, time of year. So I'll, I'll try to work out there. And then, um, if it's slow and I have a lunch break that, you know, I can either work out or, or try to do some writing, okay. but then on my days off, on my days off, I flop back to days. Um, I skip my first nap and I write through it. And then I try to put in like six hours or more of writing if I can, um, spread out throughout those days, every day that I'm off. Okay. And I burn a lot of vacations, uh, and stuff too. And I use all my holidays for writing holidays and stuff like that. And I don't, I'm way behind on my movie watching. I have almost no video game habit. I don't practice my guitar anymore. I haven't been able to go do jujitsu, but I work out in my garage. And so basically the, the main thing, how I can do that many books is I basically write, work, it work out and do family stuff. And that's it. Okay. I was going to ask you, how do you balance all that? But I guess you have a system. My system and- is, is that the writing is the thing that's easiest to lose. So I do it first. Okay. Because my family's never going to not have something they need or want. Right. My work is going to not pay me if I don't go. Right. Um, the working out sometimes is harder, but I, I get in a pretty bad mood if I haven't worked out and done some writing. Um, but the, the, and the working out, it's, it's the easiest to let go. But my main thing is I decided that I, my, my main goal is to write. I can't do everything. Okay. even though I want to. And it's just always, always put it first. It's a simple answer. Okay. Well, that sounds good. And it sounds like you have an understanding wife that, because that, we, that would be tough. While. Yeah. That would be tough. The interesting, the interesting thing about the wife, and this is short, cause I know we're going long, but, um, is I assume she resented me coming down to write. And, but when we finally had a conversation after like, you know, 20 years of marriage and stuff like she's like, well, if you want to write, just tell me that's what you want to do and go down there. But I would feel guilty and go back upstairs and try to have family time when, and I was just a cranky jerk. And they're like, why don't you just go write your stupid book? (laughs) And then we would go do something like intentional rather than having like that kind of junk time where you're mad that you're doing it. Right. Um, Yeah. So she is very understanding once we communicated about it. Okay. Well, that sounds great. Knowing now what, Knowing now what you didn't know before, when you first started, what would you have changed? What what would be like your biggest piece of advice for a newer writer that's starting out in this business? What do you think? Or where, where did okay. you see like you making the biggest mistakes at first? So the n- n- it's a, number one thing um, is don't go into debt and manage your finances and be selective about what you spend your money on as far as like the writing and stuff, like 
any anything, okay, anything at all, <clears throat> because and and write every day. That's the big thing. I mean, it, when they say that, you can't over, I can't overemphasize the importance because basically it, it's going to hardwire your brain to, to do it. Right. And you write it every day, then you get to the point you can do it. It's like working out. Sometimes sure. you don't like it, but if you show up, you have the best workout of your week. Yep. But, but the thing is, is so if I, if I had not bought a brand new car when I wanted one, if I had not bought the biggest possible house, if I had not bought all the toys and done all the things I wanted to do and, and stuff like that, then I would, I would be able to just retire and write full time right now. But in, but instead, I didn't manage my money bad, but I didn't manage it well. And I think in our society, it's easy to be a slave to the job and the credit cards. Oh, yeah. And, and if you want to write, because 99.9% of writers are not going to be rich. They might make a living at it. You're not going to be Stephen King or Jackie right. Rowling's. And you, can, and you can make very good money. But first, you have to be able to just survive as a writer. And to do that's easier if you don't have lots of debt service. Okay. Well, that makes total sense. You know, and I see a lot of parallels between writing and working out. If you want, and everybody's measure of success is different for writing and mm -hmm. working out. You know, I work out at a meathead gym where they're all, most of them are power lifters. And my, right. you know, lifting a whole lot of weight for me is long out the window. You know, I tore my right rotator cuff a couple of times. You know, I blew out my back. My knee is, <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with yeah, my I'm, knee. I'm but, not yeah. trying to impress anybody now. Right, yeah. exactly. I just want to be healthy. You know, in the fitness industry, there's so many like people trying to give you these hacks and shortcuts. Hey, you know, you got to try this and you got to try that. And that's the only way you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And you see that a lot in the writing community too, where, mm -hmm. you know, you have to do it this way and you have to do it that way. And that's why I like, you know, the 20 books to 50 K group, you know, everybody yeah. has their own measure of success and no, you don't need quote unquote, you know, this or that, you know, say like your covers, not everybody can afford a custom cover that costs over a thousand dollars. You know, when you're right. maybe writing one book or publishing one book every two years and maybe that genre isn't so hot, you can't afford it. And that doesn't make you a bad person and you shouldn't feel bad about that. And oh, by the way, I was going to say, I do love your covers. I was looking at your um, website. I know this is completely off yeah. what I'm saying right now, but man, th they really strike the eye. Where do you get those? Well, and so that's interesting because... Um I have those, like a lot of those covers you're probably looking at are from my collaborators. So one way to deal with not being able to afford a cover is to go with a publisher or a collaborator. Okay. So, so the, the Brothers in Arm books, First Strike, uh, in those books, those are Athon, and they, okay. they bought the book covers. The Last Reaper series, those are all um, Jeff Cheney. He fronted that money for those okay. books, and then they did they did pretty well, so now we can make more of them. Oh, yeah. But the, my early book covers cost yeah. So if you look at Enemy of Man, that's my one of my, my first sci-fi, and that cover cost me $130. Okay. Which I thought was a fortune at the time. Yeah, that's not but, really. But it was not bad. It is right. but it's not bad and, and it does its job. So Right. So you're you're, you're, you're in, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh your analogy about the fitness thing is really a good analogy because it's writing a book and getting in shape are the same things. Like if you get in shape, it's gonna take you several months and you have to be consistent Correct. and you got to have, you got to think writing a book can, I mean, even if you're fast, it's going to take you a month or two and you can't just bang it out in a weekend. 
and then make bad writing decisions the rest of the month. You have to do it every day yes. until you get where you want to go. Yeah, I believe consistency is the key. And, you know, have some kind of plan. You know, you seem like, mm -hmm. you know, you have a lot of your ducks in a row. Whenever I go on vacation, I still work out. I find a gym and I work yeah. out when I'm on vacation. That's part of the fun is seeing how, you know, people do it differently or, you know, the setups in different cities. I was in Daytona Beach a couple of years ago and there was a guy in there. I went to a Gold's. It was a little bit north in Ormond Beach. <laughs> I, I would go to this Gold's. And there's a guy who's probably in his late sixties and he was built pretty good, but he wasn't like a bodybuilder or a power lifter right. for that much. And he goes over to the bench and he puts 45s and 25s on each side. Now this guy's almost 70, I'm guessing. And he's yeah. just pounding out the reps and his form is perfect. And I'm like, when I grow up, I want to be you dude. You know? And at the yeah. same time, there was like a fitness class going on for seniors and there was guys in there his age that could barely, they're like in chairs, just like doing stretching and barely stuff. Walk. Yeah. And this guy is just, he was a stud and I'm like, yeah. wow. So, you know, I, you don't have to, you don't have, I mean, you always have limitations. You get older. So I'm getting older now, right. but, um, but it just depends on if you put in that, if you put those miles, when I was on the, I was in college, I was on the rowing team and, and our coach, like you put miles in the bank, you row and you put those things in the bank and then you get to benefit from them later. And stuff. So I, I had a, a, a coworker that's a little bit like a year or two older than me, and he's so strong that my goal is literally to be half as strong as he is. I would feel like <laughs> a really I feel like a stud if I could lift half as much weight as he did. Yeah, you know? it, he's, he's doing it. Wow. Well, tell you what, I think this is a good place to stop. I know we ran over a little, well, more than a little, but hey, what are you going to do? Um, where can people find you and your work, Scott? Um, I have a web page, scottmoonrider.com. Uh, if you want, I also have a Facebook group called The Moon Base. It's on Facebook. And then Keystroke Medium, we have a Facebook group that's very active. And you'll probably find me there if you can't find me anyplace else. Right. And that's a YouTube uh, video. You have the podcast and you also have the Yeah. Uh, so, so we have a, the uh, Facebook, uh, yeah, Facebook, Facebook Keystroke Medium group. And then we, they do, we have podcasts you can listen to. Uh, YouTube, you can do uh, as well. Okay. Well, thanks for being on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. And I hope you enjoyed episode seven of the Cops and Riders podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. Thank you, Lieutenant Scott Moon, for being on the show today. Scott was gracious enough to share his wealth of police knowledge with us and share how he balances prolific and successful author of business and his personal life and professional life. Thanks to all of you who support my work, either through buying my books in the Cops and Writers series available on Amazon. Just type in Cops and Writers in the search bar and you'll find them. Being a patron at patreon.com forward slash Cops and Writers. Participating in my Cops and Writers Facebook group, hiring me as a consultant for your work, or visiting me at my website, copsandwriters.com. Thank you so much. Before I go, could you do me a favor? Could you please subscribe to the Cops and Writers podcast and leave a review? It would be so helpful, and it makes sure you don't miss an episode of the podcast. That's it for now. Thanks again, and let's be careful out there.